0: In any case, that's what I forgot to do, but that's okay. So it was it was Matt Nelson who suggested our program tonight. Um, he says Michael Kason, he's very he's got all these studies he does with cicadas and fungi. You have to have him, and I am I take enthusiastic advice very well. But welcome to Illinois Mycological Association. We're glad you're here.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate the uh, introduction and uh, the enthusiasm. And, and Matt, thank you for suggesting me. Today, we're going to take a voyage and talk uh, about periodical cicadas and their fungi. One, because it's something I've invested a lot of time in over the last five years. But the other thing is, you know, come 2024, you're going to have a, a grand emergence of periodical cicadas in in your neck of the woods. And I thought it appropriate and, and was suggested to me that we kind of uh, link in kind of the work that I've been doing and, and prepare you for what's to come, not only cicada-wise, but those lovely interactions between um, obligate pathogens, fungal pathogens and cicadas. So in addition to being an associate professor of mycology and forest pathology, um, I'm director of a collection called INVAM that's housed at WVU, and that's the world's largest collection of arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. For those of you that know anything about mycorrhizae, um, these are mutualistic fungi that form partnerships with the roots of plants. Um, A lot of ectomycorrhizal fungi are mushroom forming fungi, which stand in contrast with the arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are, you know, um, earlier diverging lineage of fungi that basically sporulate in and on the roots of their host plants. So we have about 900 accessions in our collection. Uh, the collection actually is going to be transferred um, to Kansas here over the next few years. Um, the person who had been running NBAM, Joe Morton, retired. And I took over the collection to act as a kind of a shepherd for the collection as it made its way through the transition. But um, I don't specialize in Arbuscular Mycorrhizal Fungi. Nevertheless, I understand the importance of the collection. and We're happy to house it at WBU. So just before I get into talking about cicadas and, and fungus arthropod interactions, I just wanted to say that, you know, at WVU, I do a number of things, and I kind of have four pillars to my research program. The first uh, being the historic and emerging canker diseases of trees. And this is really where I got my start working on beech bark disease. And these are members of Neonectria, the genus Neonectria. Um, and I continue to work on those fungi and closely allied fungi to this day. And um, here in Eastern West Virginia. Um, Of course, I just mentioned arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi. So we do a little work on on the interactions with plants. Um, We've recently got into some work between um, working with hemp and and looking at how AMF modulate uh, terpenoids uh, in hemp plants. So that's been kind of interesting. Um, The other area that I've spent a lot of my career on is fungal biocontrol i did my phd on on killing the invasive tree of heaven uh, with a native verticillium fungus and and that's um, gotten a lot of attention and we continue to work on that and it's actually become more important lately because of a new pest called spotted lanternfly which some of you may have heard of and it's actually as coincidence would have it uh closely related cicadas um and that's causing some real problems in fruit orchards and, and vineyards um, and its preferred co-evolved host is Tree of Heaven, or at least one of them. And Tree of Heaven is uh, in 40 of the 48 continuous uh, states and provides not only beacons on the landscape for these invasive spotted lantern flies, but service bridges across the landscape for these pests to move into new areas where wine production is really important. But the highlight of today will be fungus arthropod interactions. I kind of cut my teeth working on ambrosia beetles. And that's what you're seeing here. An ambrosia beetle in a fungus filled gallery. These are fungus farming beetles. Um, Did a lot of work on that. Continue to work on that to this day. Um, And more recently started to work on on obligate parasites uh, and namely Mesospora, which I'm gonna talk about today on cicadas. And most recently um, we are supported by National Geographic to study the fungal communities of fungus um, feeding millipedes a group of 300 million year old um, arthropods that are among the first terrestrialized land animals and may have formed very important intricate relationships with fungi and we're investigating that maybe that for another day so here's a, a, a snapshot of some of my lab members we've added a few recently uh, but i put some green check marks next to some of the people that contributed to this talk in terms of data um angie macias is my um PhD student who works on the millipedes, as you can see here in the picture, but she uh, did a lot on the phylogenetics of mesospora. Uh, My postdoc, Brian Lovett, has been doing a lot and trying to understand the evolution of behavioral modification by these fungi. And um, just to acknowledge my former PhD student, Greg Boyce, who a lot of his work is kind of built off his chapter of his dissertation. And Matt Berger, a former master student of mine, who continues to collect weird, rare specimens from me all over the globe and send them to me. So Anyway, that's just a, a quick snapshot of who we are. Now, for those of you that don't know cicadas, it's okay. I'm going to give a little tutorial here. Uh, these are different from locusts, although people confuse locusts and 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 cicadas a lot. Um, they talk in the Bible about locusts, plagues of locusts. That's not the same thing. Cicadas are different. Um, we're talking about a superfamily in the order of Hemiptera. These are true bugs. Uh, they feed on sapia piercing mouth parts, and they are close relatives to plant and leaf hoppers. I mentioned just a slide or two ago about the invasive spot and in lanternfly, and that's one such example of a plant hopper. Uh, that's very cicada-like looking, but here on, on the uh, top picture, you can see some periodical cicadas on one of my students' hand. Uh, these things, uh, periodical, periodical cicadas, I'm sure you're very familiar with. And here's a, um, uh, an annual cicada below that occurs in your great state. So, we'll talk about that in a second. There's about 3,000 species worldwide. Most of them are in the tropics, but we have plenty here to brag about here in the United States. Now, this is really important. There's both annual and periodical cicadas. Now, despite the name, annual cicadas don't complete their life cycle in one year, but some members of the population merge each year. So, therefore, we can see them annually. Take, for example, the dog day cicadas, which we hear right now still, uh, calling from the treetops. We, we find them in the hottest part of the summer. Um, there um, There's several genera that are involved with that, um, but they take two to five years to develop underground as nymphs. And, you know, there's a lot that happens underground um, and we can't see it, but we know that they're under there. They're feeding on roots, they're counting sap cycles. Um, and of course, the highlight of today, will be periodical cicadas, although we will tie in some annual cicadas too. Um, These are 13 or 17 year um, cicadas that spend most of their life underground as nymphs, um, going through a couple of molts, feeding on the roots of plants and counting sap cycles. There's a reason they know when to come up. Cicadas are very good counters. um, And they basically use the change in root pressure uh, to know when another year has passed. And um, they have an internal mechanism for tallying those um, SAP cycles so they know when to come up. And some come up later and some come up earlier. Oftentimes that's plus or minus four years. Um, And there's a a whole subfield of mathematics almost devoted to um, the the prime number phenomenon associated with cicadas. And it has something to do with predator evasion, but there's been dozens and dozens of papers written about periodical cicadas and and prime numbers and how they have kind of uh, found a way to thrive and and avoid predation. Um, But um, they emerge in such high numbers that that doesn't even seem to matter. So where do periodical cicadas occur and what broods are present in Illinois? Um, This is a great, this figure up top is, is a great figure from a paper by Soda uh, in 2013. This was published um, along with Chris Simon, who's uh, one of the premier, her and Jean Kritsky are two of the premier cicada biologists here in the United States. And they kind of mapped um, using genetics, they mapped the kind of different broods of periodical cicadas, where they occur, um, kind of their, their gene flow and whatnot, um, And and clearly we could see that uh, there are a number of of circles present in Illinois. Um, We're seeing things like 23, we're seeing things like 19, um, and those are 13-year cicadas. Um, But of course we have some some 17-year cicadas as well, including um, brood 13, which will emerge in 2024. We had a little bit of brood 10, although that was very limited in where it occurred in the state. Uh, and that was this year in 2021, uh, the largest brood. Um, although I don't think Illinois got much coverage in terms of brood 10. And maybe someone could clarify a little later on. Um, so you could see that there's a number of, of broods um, that are set to emerge in the next few years. But the thing that we want to talk about is, you know, in 2024, we're going to have the overlap of uh, 13-year cicada brood 19, and um, 17-year cicadas, uh, brood 13. So that should be very exciting. Um, And I'll show you here in a second. They don't overlap too much. Um, Now, this statement may come as no surprise to uh, those native to Illinois and the crowd that Illinois uh, is is an interesting state. From a cicada perspective, it's very interesting um, because it, it has some challenges for understanding periodical cicada biology. That's because it contains both 13 and 17 year life cycles. And all seven currently recognized species, including the three 17 year and the four 13 year cicadas. And that's five separate broods, some of which have disjunct populations. So figuring out who's emerging where, um, especially when you can have cicadas emerging four years early or four years late, presents some real challenges. And that's not for most of us to concern ourselves with Uh, people like Chris Simon and Gene Kretzky. And, you know, they're doing all that mapping and genetic testing. Uh, But we'd like to know who's in our backyard when they show up. Um, And this is kind of a rough map showing their delineation. There's better newer maps uh, published through Yukon's website and with the help of, of apps like Cicada Safari um, and, and, uh community science platforms like iNaturalist were able to kind of understand where things are emerging um and when they're emerging and that's uh, real powerful to have that kind of uh resolve data sets that we can then kind of understand who's where and who's doing what and how populations are changing over time so I pulled up this this is just a screen grab from today of, of periodical cicadas and you can look by state and this is Illinois And it clearly shows there's a lot of observations in the northern part of the state. Um, Obviously, most of the cicada action, we're talking in the eastern half of the state. Um, And you can just look here at some of the grabs, uh, some of the pictures, 2020, 2021. So you probably had some Brood 10 in there. But, um, you know, the question is, is that Brood 9? Well, uh, no, Brood 9 doesn't occur there. So what does that mean that there's all those cicadas in the northern part? Well, those are probably four-year early. Um, brood 13. And that's what you're seeing there because remember, they're going to emerge in 2024. Um, so, um, sometimes it's try to, it's tricky to figure out what's going on, particularly when you go to websites like Cicada Main and said, Well, there's no, there's no periodical Cicada supposed to be emerging this year yet. You see them. So, trying to figure that out, but there's a lot of, of data available out there and these, these types of platforms like iNaturalist and Sica- Safari Cicada, um, they provide. Uh, an exceptional amount of data um, for even the the average, you know, uh, naturalist to really make make sense of what they're seeing. Now, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there's some other annual cicadas present in Illinois as well, in addition to the periodical cicadas. And and of course, a number of these are, are some of the screamers you hear in in, in late summer, the Neotibicen and, and, and whatnot some of these dog day cicadas, but there's some other cicadas as well. um, And, you know, quite diverse. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit today about one of these, Okanagana ramosa. That's one of the annual cicadas that we studied our fungus on. So um, it's not just periodical cicadas that have a obligate uh, fungal parasite, but these annual cicadas get them as well. And we haven't found them on all the annual cicadas, but there's quite a, a number of annual cicadas that do get them. And Okanagana or Ramosa is one of those species. So this is not all the diversity of cicadas present in Illinois. I encourage you to check out Cicada Mania, which is a website, um, all things cicada. And you can look up all the cicadas that are present in any, any state. And it's a, it's a real re- nice resource. But I really, you know, I'm here to tell you a story uh, that started back in 2016 and really um, it changed my research program significantly. Um, you know, oftentimes we're, we're caught in the middle of something and it's just like, a an opportunity arises and we, and we can't pass it up. And, and really that's what happened with cicadas and, and mesospora starting in 2016. I started at WVU in 2014 and, um, Although I was studying fungus-insect interactions, uh, particularly I was, I was studying ambrosia beetles and their fungal mutualists, um, I didn't really do much other work on insect-fungal interactions. Um, but these cicadas um, started emerging, or at least they were getting ready to emerge. My students came in in April of, of 2016 and said, hey, you know, the cicadas are getting ready to emerge. And, and two of my students were real uh cicada enthusiasts. Um they had t-shirts with cicadas on them. They were they were ready. Uh but I wasn't ready because I didn't really uh, this was outside my, you know, I, I hadn't heard of this, I hadn't looked at it. Um but certainly when they started to come out in mass numbers, you, you can't avoid them. They're just everywhere. Um and if there's one thing we know about disease is that whether we're talking about COVID-19 or obligate you know early diverging fungal parasites of insects Um, with increased population densities comes uh, you know epidemics and when cicadas emerge in the millions of cicadas per hectare or you know millions per acre you're going to see a number of of disease epidemics emerge or epizootics and that's exactly what um what we were expecting and what we saw um, you know, not only are there wing deformities based on temperature and, um, you know, um, other bird strikes and things like that, but it was quick, uh, to see a number of the fungal pathogens emerge. So I just want to remind everybody before I get into all this, that cicadas are, have, have been known for a long time to have fungal parasites. Um, in addition to mesospora, we get things like Ophiocordyceps, which is this mohawk nymph here on the upper left. We get, uh, um, Bavaria, we get Metarizium, isaria. Um, these are all fungal pathogens of, of different stages. Some are nymph specific, some are adult specific. Um, these two down here are periodical cicadas. This is not a periodical cicada, but sometimes it's hard when you just have a nymph to know what it is, but we can we know because of the literature. Now there's other cicadas like these dog-day cicadas I was mentioning that have kind of a white underbelly. And, and look like they have fungus all over them, but that's just how they look. Um, and we get a lot of calls about these. We get a lot of people saying, we found a fungus-infected cicada, um, and it just turns out it was one of these cicadas that died on the pavement, and they see it in the white underbelly, and they think, well, it's fungus. Um, I mean, I, I understand why people would assume that, um, because it's kind of chalky-looking, but that's just how they naturally look. So there are things that look like fungus that are not. But my students were like, listen, there's this obligate pathogen of cicadas called Mesospora. And Angie, the student picture, uh, pictured here on the, the right, um, was an undergrad at Cornell. And she worked in the fungal herbarium up there um, with, with Kathy Hodge. And she had photographed the type specimens for several Mesospora species. And she said, and she had written a little article for the Cornell mushroom blog on on Mesospora back then and coined a phrase that became a uh, a darling of the media, uh, flying salt shakers of death. And we'll talk about how Miss turns cicadas into that. Uh, but she said, listen, there's this really cool understudied parasite of cicadas, a uh, fungal parasite, and it makes their butts fall off and it doesn't seem to kill them. And I don't think many people have studied it. I think our lab should study it. And, and Matt Berger, who was also a student, grew up in Cincinnati, spent his life just studying and loving periodical cicadas um, he was the one with several shirts and he said, look, I would love to be involved with this. I'll collect as many as we need. Um, this is uh, something I'm really passionate about. And, uh, you know, eventually they brought me this first specimen and said, here it is. And once I, I saw it, I, I recognized that it was really cool because the cicada was still alive and even though it had a fungal plug popping out of its, its posterior end of its abdomen, and you could see the abdomen popping open here and this chalky white fungal plug emerging. And the abdominal sclerites are sloughing off in rings Um, and the cicada can continue to fly, continue to mate. So that was really interesting. So I said, okay, um, we don't have a lot of time, but let's collect as many as we can. I gave, you know, we had collection vials let's put them in the freezer and then we'll figure out what to do next. If there's one lesson, I I often tell my students and, and tell people when I give talks like this is that you really have to, uh, Embrace opportunities to sample things like this because you can always say, "Oh, I'll go back. I'll get another time." But th- that moment will pass, and you know I don't go anywhere without collection tubes because you never know when an opportunity to collect something strange might might occur or something rare. So um, we were lucky that this was happening right outside on our campus, so we can literally walk a hundred yards and collect dozens of infected cicadas. So, what do we know about this fungus, Mesospora, that I want to talk about today? Well, it's a member of the Entomophthorales. Um, some of you may know that um, that order of fungus um, because it um, also is um, Entomophthora musky, the fly summit disease pathogen. Is that also there's um, a um, a biocontrol agent of gypsy moth um, that is also a member of the Entomophthorales, And this is in the zoopagomycota, this all used to be zygomycetes, but it's no longer. So we know of at least 13 obligate sexually transmis- transmissible pathogens in this group that infect some 21 cicada species worldwide. And my student, Angie summarized this in a, in a paper we published last year. Uh, you can see these uh, various Mesosporous species. Now we um, highlighted the ones that we focused on for our study. Um, and we'll get into that here in a second, but you can see you know, a number of these occur in South America, some have been from Australia, um, but mostly you know, the Western hemisphere, although there are some reports from the Eastern hemisphere. Uh, this was formally established by Peck in 1879. It was described earlier, the first recorded publication is about 1861, but it was formally established by Peck in 1879, Uh, with a periodical cicada from new york despite its description in the late 1800s it remained like a lot of fungi a mycological oddity for 100 years now it's easy to understand why let's think about the insect it spends most of its life 13 or 17 years underground as a nymph emerges for in a spectacular fashion for maybe four to six weeks Um, And only maybe 1% to 5% of the population on average um, is infected. So you have to be in the right place at the right time. um, And you have to wait long periods of time in between emergence. Now, luckily, we live in a, a time and an age where it's easy to drive from one location to the next. It's a lot harder in the late 1800s to drive around chasing the different brutes because it wasn't well understood what the different brutes were or You know they're where to go and sample so it's easy for us as as modern day scientists to say okay you know last year we traveled to to southern west virginia the year before that we traveled to excuse me southwest pennsylvania before that syracuse new york and before that you know we we follow the different broods because being in west virginia we're centrally located and we can collect fungus infected cicadas each year You have to travel a little bit, but if you were a scientist back then in one place, it would be really hard to make progress on something you can't rear in the lab and that only shows up once every 20 years. So from 2016 to 2019, we acquired a lot of infected specimens. Here's just the three magic species, both male and female, males on the bottom. Um, You can see the tymbals behind the back legs. These are the the sound producing organs um, that only males have. And you could see the Mesospora infections on each of these, just to see kind of how they manifest. So this is male-female pairs for each of the three Magus species that are part of brood five and are are part of many of the broods. Some broods have fewer than than three, but a lot of broods have all three of these species. But we also acquired a number of infected Mesospora species um, or Mesospora infected specimens um, from various collaborators um, I told you my my former student, Matt Berger, would go um, hiking and collect things. Um, so we were able to basically have people rummage through their freezers and, you know, insect drawers. So we had dried specimens. We had alcohol-stored um, specimens. We had fresh collected specimens from out West and negative um, 80 specimens from Chile. And, you know, so all these things. And we were able to pull them all together and and answer some really interesting questions. And and we can see the fungal spores here. We see the canidia on top and we see the resting spores um, on the bottom. And we'll talk a little bit about the the life cycle of the fungus here in a second. This is five different species of Mesospora that we were able to acquire and kind of study.
2: Matt, pardon me. We have a question in the chat and it's actually from Sarah's eight year old son but maybe others in the audience have the same question. Uh, Sarah Sun wants to know how the fungus makes the butt fall off of the cicada, please.
1: Well, I will answer that, Um, but uh, I'll I'll just, I'll briefly answer it here and then I'll show the disease cycle. The fungus gets inside the nymph. So it actually infects the nymph when it's underground. The nymph comes up, it molts into an adult. It continues to devour the inside of the abdomen, and building a pressure to the point where it basically it starts to break apart the exoskeleton in the back. And the way that the exoskeleton is assembled, it's kind of in these rings. So it makes the the, the backmost rings fall off first, revealing this fungal plug. So it's a combination of of using up all the real estate and pressure from the expanding fungal plug, that basically it, it consumes that part of the the inside of the the cicada, but basically breaks off the outside of that cicada, if that makes sense. So good question. Thank you. Um, Of course, a lot of the the papers from the 1800s, you're not going to find, well, this is what the DNA analysis told us, of course, because really we didn't start sequencing things till the 1990s and we didn't really you know, use ITS widely until much later than that, we're talking like early 2000s and stuff like that. So, you know, if you're going to try to link modern studies with historic studies, you have to go back to the classic morphology. And I'm I'm a strong believer in coupling morphological studies with molecular phylogenetics. Um, I think it, it leads to more robust science. Um, So we were able to do things like look at the number of nuclei per spore and, and look at the epispore and for roughness and measure the length and the width of the spores to compare them and say, okay, these are allegedly five distinct species. Do we see differences? And in some cases we did, uh, like I have circled there, the width showed that for five different species, we had five you know, based on statistical tests, they were significantly different, um, but the length not so much and and the resting spore diameter, not so much. So um, sometimes things can be morphologically, morphologically cryptic. That is we can't tell them apart morphologically, uh, but they still are different. Now, we were really excited because we were able to generate the first DNA sequences for this fungus. There was one deposit in GenBank, but it turned out to be um, an incorrect um, deposit. It was an Entomoptera that was deposited. So we were able to deposit these um, and create a phylogenetic tree that is a family tree based on DNA sequences so that we can determine whether or not these species boundaries held up. That, you know, um, in these historic publications said, okay, these are five different species. Well, as it turned out, that it resolved into a, a single group so these are all closely related they're all kind of sisters and cousins uh but what's really interesting is that two of these mesospora platypedia from from these wingbanger cicadas out in california and colorado um, and mesospora levispora, which came from the okanagana rimosa that one annual cicada i pointed out that's um also occurs in illinois um, formed a, a basically a clonal lineage and basically what this molecular data is telling us that these two things, although they were called two different species, are the same fungus. So that was really interesting to find. And we'll get back to why that's even more interesting here in a second. Um, but you know, um, the rest of the the data just kind of supported the morphology that, you know, they were distinct species and that all mesospora species were closely related. Um, but we recognize that this mesospora platypedia and levispora were. What were once called two species are now one. So that happens a lot in taxonomy. So it's not a big deal, but it was pretty interesting nonetheless. One of the reasons that people really like Mesospora and we like talking about it is that it, 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 it modifies the behavior of its host. Um, and, and you may be familiar with summit disease because it's, it's one that's gotten a lot of attention. Rightfully so. It's really interesting. You've probably heard of the zombie ants. This is the phenomenon where an infected ant with uh, an ant infected with opiocordyceps will climb to a high perch and lock down its mandibles onto a blade of grass or a leaf or a, a twig, um, fix its abdomen. And then a fungus will emerge from the cadaver post-mortem, even out of the head and uh, grow up and it's late, And those spores will rain down on unsuspecting ants below. And this is a real interesting phenomenon. and This is a a type of manipulation done by fungi um, to increase or maximize spore dispersal. We call that summit disease. Um, The the infected arthropod always goes up. It always adheres or affixes to a a substrate. And then there's post-mortem sporulation. That is the fungus produces spores outside the infected host once it's died. That's really in contrast to what we're seeing with mesospora, the cicada fungus, where we have active host transmission. Now I said, we made the kind of funny observation that the butt fell off, but you know, the cicada continues to fly around as if everything's normal, as if it's butt didn't fall off. Now, you know, up to a third of its body could be consumed by the fungus. um, And yet it it seems to have an unusual pep in its step. Um, If one of us were to lose a limb, you know, we probably would feel lethargic and, and want to remain stationary, but that's not the case for um, cicadas that are infected with mesospora. So, the canidial dispersal happens prior to host death, and it's also seen in, in another fungus called strungwellsia and entomophthora. Now, what you're looking over here at the, the right is kind of like a subway map for behavioral modification. And if we follow mesospora, for example, we could ask the question, does it Host behavior facilitate transmission? Yes. Are the spores discharged by the fungus? In myosospora's case, it's, it's not, um, they're not actively discharged. They fall off. That's why we call them kind of flying salt shakers of death. They pour out of the abdomen um, and loosely fall off as the cicada flies around and engages in normal mating behaviors. What's the host status during transmission? It's alive. We call that active host transmission. And some cause some disease and some have no manipulative transmission. But that's not the only thing that happens with infected cicadas. Active host transmission is a phenomenon we see in several genera, Strongwell's and entomoptera, but there's something unique about mesospora. We see what's called hypersexual behaviors in infected cicadas. So in addition to uh, attempting to mate with females, an infected male, for example, will mimic females to attract mating attempts by other males, thus doubling the number of cicadas that an uninfected cicada can come in contact with. Um, this is present only in cicadas with canidial infections, not resting spore infections. And this hypersexual behavior is known from Magus cicada, Platypedia, Okanagana, and Disaroprocta. And that's why we really tried to secure samples of those. And we did get samples of all those um, for two, one of our studies. And, and for the study I'm gonna highlight next, we had uh, three of these species. So just to kind of show you what's happening to, to follow up on that, that question earlier about you know winds infection occurring, you have these nymphs that fall down at the end of the summer off the branches, they go down, they start feeding on the roots, and that's where they're going to remain for 17 or 13 years. And they'll move around. If roots die, they can move to some adjacent roots. But if whole whole forests are cut down, the nymphs will die underground with the with the dead roots. Um, so you can see where land clearing in between successive cicada generations could really impact the the survival of of cicadas in those local environments. But over time, those nymphs start to come up top, getting ready to emerge in the months leading up to year 17 or year 13. They create a vertical emergence chamber where they sit below um, the soil, uh, like below the duff layer, and they wait for the temperature to reach a perfect 64 degrees at which they emerge um, synchronously um, in the billions. So it's during that time we think they encounter mesospora And we think the spores are actually interacting with a hormone cue in the cicadas because otherwise they might just try to germinate, infect anything that passed by. But we think that they've co-evolved to recognize the molting hormone of the cicada saying, hey, the cicada is coming up and it's ready to to emerge. Now's our time to get in. So what happens is the the nymph comes above ground, um, it uh, is infected, it molts um, into an adult, but it maintains the infection. Um, and then over time, the abdominal sclerites t- start to slough off, revealing this fungal plug. Um, uh, mating attempts occur, although not successful, because one of the uh, cicadas no longer have genitalia, but instead have a fungal plug. Um, and then that transmission occurs through a mating attempt, um, and and the cycle kind of continues. Now, the cicadas that are receive those spores from the mating attempt actually develop resting spore um, infection, and that eventually makes its way back into the soil. Um, but that's generally the life cycle. There, there's some components where we don't actually know if certain things happen, so we put a question mark, because we don't know, for example, if if, uh, if a cicada that makes contact with an infected cicada, if it gets a, uh, its own canidial infection, and that can happen twice before it goes to resting spores. We don't know if females could give their nymphs mesospera infections before they actually go down or the ground. So that's a really interesting question too. Um, so one of the interesting um, things about this is that the hypersexual behavior seems to be confined at the conidial state and absent from the later stage. And we did kind of confirm this through chemical analysis and I'll talk about here in a second. Um, so. Because a lot of work has been done on on behavioral modification in animals and and fungal parasites, we thought to ask whether or not small molecules, that is fungal secondary metabolites, might be responsible for these aberrant behaviors we saw in the cicadas, because really it's only occurring in a specific spore stage of the the cicada, and it's uh, present in, in more than one cicada species, and it's always kind of the same. So really we're asking, Can fungal metabolites be responsible for this? And are those molecules conserved across mesospora species? So what we did is we applied basically something called global metabolomics. And this is using liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. We don't have to get into all the details of that, but this is a highly sensitive instrument. Um, This is analytical chemistry essentially, where you can uh, basically pulverize uh, a sample and that we basically took the fungal plugs off the back of the cicadas and we put them in, um, you know, we put them in methanol and then, um, spun it down and then ran it through this, this LCMS and asked what kind of compounds are present in those plugs. And we were able to do that for both mesospora cicadina plugs. And we have these mesospora, um, um Levispora plugs as well. And we also had some resting spores in mesospora cicadina. And when you look at it visually, you can can kind of look at these um, total um, ion chromatograms and see kind of different signatures. This is a mesospora from periodical cicadas. This is a mesospora from from annual cicadas. And you can see they look very similar. And then compared to the abdomen of just a healthy cicada, which looks very different in the middle. So you can see that these kind of fingerprints are are more closely related than this. Um, So each sample produced unique signatures with, with two Mesospora species looking more identical to each other than either one of them look to the healthy cicada. And of course, with these kind of global studies where you're asking who the heck's in there, you're going to get a lot of stuff. And we found 1,176 differentially detected small molecules. And we can get that to spit out in an Excel spreadsheet. You just scroll down and you, you know, you kind of look around and say, okay, what did it find? And, you know. Some of the things are well-known compounds, some of them are not, some of them are just chemical formulas. Some of them are just masses. Uh, but two uh, alkaloids stood out to us right from the start. So this is a couple of years ago and I'm I'm sitting at home and my phone rings on a winter morning, like, like really early in the morning. And it's my grad student and it's uh, Greg Boyce. Uh, and he's the one who kind of helped he and I made this discovery. And, uh, you know, of course I'm, I'm, reaching for my phone. Cause it's really early in the morning. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And, uh, it's Greg in the line. He says, Matt, I got to tell you something. I'm like, Greg, what time is it? It's like 2 AM or something. I'm like, Greg, what's going on? It's 2 AM. Like, what are you calling me about? And he said, you know, those, those misospora plugs that you gave me from the the annual cicadas out West, the, the wingbanger cicadas that, um, that had the misospora platypedia. I said, yeah. He said, well, you're not going to believe this. They're loaded with psilocybin. And I'm like, what? And uh, he said, you know what psilocybin is, right? And I said, of course, that's the psychoactive compound that's found in magic mushrooms. And I said, like, are you sure? And he said, no, I'm sure it's in every sample. It's in every sample. And we published this back in 2019. Um, he said, but we have to do some other things to, to confirm it. And I said, oh, okay, like we talked for a couple minutes and then hung up, but, you know, of course, my mind was really, and after that, really excited that, you know, we had basically detected this, this, this high amount of psilocybin from the mesospital levispora, but not from the Cicadena or the control. And it was 17 fold higher compared to those, those other two. So the next thing you basically do is you, you try to compare it to a chemical standard. Um, and you look at its fingerprint, the way that you compare, you know, fingerprinted a crime scene with a fingerprint database, and you ask, okay, if we if we apply a voltage to this mass and, and we fragment it, it creates this kind of unique fingerprint, and then we compare it to this analytical standard you can buy, and sure enough, it matched um, eight fragments, and this this is like complete confirmation that the compound is there. And it wasn't present in the healthy cicada. Now, one hiccup we hit along the way is I went to go order this compound, the psilocybin analytical standard. And of course, as I put it in my shopping cart at like, you know, one of these online scientific uh, stores, this, this warning stop sign popped up and it said, please enter your DEA research number. And I was like, oh my God, like this is regulated by the DEA. We can't like study this. Like, and my, my student assured me, he's like, don't worry about it. We'll just get a DEA exam analytical standard. It's really common. You can get ones that are like, uh, can't be abused. So you can just get one and you don't need a permit. So we, we were able to do that. And, you know, that was no problem. um So, of course, my next question and, and maybe your next question is, okay, it's great. You found this in some cicadas at West, but like, we're getting ready for periodical cicadas. Let's hear about periodical cicadas. So, of course, we went right over to the periodical data set and said, Do we see the same compound in in periodical scales? It wasn't there. And I was like, oh man, what what are we going to do? So we're digging around and then we're sitting in my office and and Greg's at the other desk and he said, wait a minute, I think I found something. And he said, have you heard of cathinone? And I said, no, I I haven't. So quick, you know, did what most scientists do, got on Wikipedia and and pulled up uh, cathinone. So for those of you that don't know cathinone, this is a naturally occurring amphetamine or stimulant that occurs in a plant that's a plant that's native to the Horn of Africa called cat plant. And we detected this compound in Mesospora cicadina canadial plugs. Um, and they chew this in the, in parts of the Middle East, including places like Yemen. It's used in a st- as a stimulant to engage in conversation. Um, and it was definitely like uh, really highly, um, upregulated in mesospora Ciclina. We did find a little bit in, in mesospora platypedia that was later determined to be um, uh, not true. Uh, we basically followed up with an experiment to figure that out. And there's there's basically something called isobaric compounds. And, and I won't get into that, but that, that wasn't legitimate. Uh, but what you could see here is that it was much higher in the canidia than it was say the resting spores. And the, what that's telling us is that if this is a candidate compound for behavioral modification, it's only happening in the Canadian state. And that's actually where we're seeing the behavioral modification. So that was really interesting. So of course we did the same thing. We found a DEA exempt standard, we fragmented and, and confirmed um, that at least three of the fragments matched. And really all you need is uh, two or three fragments to confirm that as long as they're within this kind of acceptable error um, limit. And we didn't find it, you know, most importantly, we didn't find it in the healthy cicada avenues ab-
2: Matt, we have yeah. a question on yeah. the DEA exemption on the standards. Oh. And the question yeah. is, is it similar to the research alcohol tax exemption where they just add poison so people don't consume it?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's exactly what they do. They, they add like acetonitrile or some kind of compound that if you consumed it, you would, you would die upon <laughs> you consuming it. So you, yes it's exactly like that. Um, as kind of a, since we, we did kind of stop to talk about the DA thing, I will mention the story because it's, it's actually one of the funniest stories like of the whole project. And one that I talked to several journalists about when we got a lot of coverage on this is that after these discoveries, I realized that I was sitting on a bunch of specimens with amphetamines and psilocybin in the lab. And I'm just like, I'm, you know, I'm a law abiding citizen. I'm kind of a straight arrow. And I was just like, Oh no, this, the DEA SWAT team's going to come in here. They're going to tase me, steal all our samples. Like I was really nervous because you're not supposed to research this stuff. If you don't have a DEA permit. So I sent the most awkward email in my life, you know, basically self-reporting to the DEA and, uh, I get this email back and it's just like, this is a very strange situation. Let me consult with the chemist, the the main chemist for the DEA. It was ultimately determined that, you know, we couldn't have expected this discovery. We weren't trying to concentrate it or enhance it or sell it or distribute it. So we were in the clear, but we felt like we needed to self-report if we're going to publish it. Uh, But it was certainly like a, a weird thing to have to like interact with the DEA you know, studying cicadas and fungi. Um, and then, you know, because we had these standards, we were able to create standard curves and quantify the amount of psilocybin and um and, and these things. And it showed that, you know, most of the plugs had, you know, and, and, and this comes back to, if you remember, I I, I said when we did the molecular studies, it, we basically saw that that two of the cicadas fungi were identical. And as it turns out, both of them had psilocybin. So it was kind of an independent confirmation that it was the same fungus because they both contained the same um, chemical compounds, too. So that was really cool. Now, one contained psilocin and one contained psilocybin. And, you know, the one's a breakdown product of the other, but they're, they're the same compound. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and the levels were more or less, you know, between zero and 15 or zero, 20 uh, manograms per fungal plug. Now, a question that's often asked is, how many would I have to eat to have, (laughs) to have a, you know, good night? Um, Well, that was just one of 1,176 compounds we found differentially expressed or uh, detected in these plugs. And some of the things we found were toxins. So, I mean, you know, we know what's in magic mushrooms. They're, they're consumed recreationally and and now, but medicinally, but we don't know all the compounds that are present in these fungal plugs of cicadas. So I would definitely not go out of my way to try to consume one or more than one. That said, if your dog swallows one, I think your dog could be okay too. Um, but these compounds were absent in healthy cicadas. So caffeinone, a similar story, but actually we found a number of negative samples. And, and if you understand the breakdown of, of, of metabolites, something like psilocybin has a longer shelf life. than, than um, uh, an amphetamine, and and all you need to do is is think about how these drugs are used recreationally. Amphetamines tend to be short lived. Uh, we know that like recreational drugs like bath salts are a type of synthetic cathinone. We also know that drugs that are used for ADD and ADHD are a synthetic uh, cathinone too. So these these drugs have utility from a pharmaceutical standpoint, but um, bath salts are. Been implicated in some really kind of strange behaviors. But um, the, getting back to the point that a number of these fungal plugs were absent of cathinol, but probably because of its short half life, it just had um, deteriorated. Um, so, you know, what's great is that in the literature, if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of studies where they decided you know what, let's just drug a bunch of insects with everything and see what happens. So there's studies where they, they give LSD to spiders and they give amphetamines to ants and they give, you know, peyote to, you know, to spiders and and all kinds of drugs to see how it affects web building, see how it affects aggression. And and what some of these studies showed is that the doses that we found in cicada plugs, um, like for example, the cathinone, uh, was was enough to cause aggression in ants and it also altered the feeding behavior in adult blowflies. You know, let's, let's think about like a number of these kind of drugs, not only have a, a a targeted impact where they might like increase attention and things like that, they also tend to suppress appetite because you're focusing on the one thing you're supposed to do. And if you're a fungus trying to manipulate a cicada, you don't want it to eat as much. You just want it to focus on mating and focus on spore dispersal. And that's what these cicadas are, they're extended phenotypes of fungus. And we know, for example, that psilocybin injection has a less observable impact. Spider drug webs um, took human appropriate dosages for it to be messed up. Um, But there may be some tie-in with some of these cicadas out west that rely on kind of wing tapping. um, And we know that the temporal perception is messed up by things like psilocybin. So we're still trying to understand all this and 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 really figure it out but the problem is the next steps require direct dosage or dosing of cicadas and that does require a dea oversight so we haven't taken that next leap because the permits involved are are extensive and, and require a lot of time to, to get approval so uh but really the compounds present uh in these like independently sampled populations um Provide some evidence of a chemically induced behavior. Um, the neurogenic activities of these compounds do explain some of the behavior, some of the uh, prolonged wakefulness, and some of the, you know, the hypersexual behaviors that we see in these cicadas, um, and and maybe both may act to suppress appetite. But, you know, they can't explain all these things. And and we know that, you know, it's not always so simple as it's one thing, you know, there's interactions with, with hormones and things like that. We know that the physical act of, of, of castration, you know, for a a male cicada to have its uh, genitalia taken off by this fungus is going to affect hormonal cascades, and that may be interacting with the fungus somehow. So um, there's a lot to be learned still. Um, And and with regard to what's happening underground, there's a lot we don't know that's happening underground. It's hard to observe the life cycle under there. And we can't rear these in the lab. So there's a lot of questions we hope to answer each year, and we only have a short four to six week window to ask them and answer them. So we're continuing, we're trying to sequence uh, the genome of this fungus. We sequenced the genome, but it was very low coverage. Turns out that these genomes are 10 to 20 times bigger than most fungal genomes. So it takes a lot more to sequence them. And we're doing some some follow-up, confirming the compounds and the plugs and and, and doing some other things, continuing always, always to look for more mesosporous specimens. Now, some of you may have heard of some mysterious disease that flying eating, killing hundreds of birds in the the DC area, the mid-Atlantic, that coincided with the cicada emergence. these were mostly fledglings, um, but uh, on a diverse number of birds. And although it's probably not linked to cicadas or mesospora, um, we are considering that it may be involved in some of these bird deaths. So it's um, uh, there's a lot of uh, collaborative work being done now to see if mesospora might be implicated in some of these bird deaths or um, or if cicadas, even in the absence of mesospora are involved somehow. We recently acquired some cicadas from the Florida Keys and from California, um, which may represent new mesospora species. So we're excited to get some sequence data and some morphological data and do that. Um, You know, at the end of the day, maybe someone might leave this talk and say, okay, well, the fungus is cool. Cicadas are cool, but like, how can I get involved? Well, if you look at the map of, of Illinois and you look at the mesospora, Uh, data for iNaturalist, there's one observation. So I'm challenging everyone on the call that uses iNaturalist to make sure when the next brood emerges that you're uploading your pictures and your observations of Mesospora. Um, You can also do that on Safari Cicada um, and elsewhere. Uh, You can also send us samples, but at at minimum, I think making some observations and uploading them to iNaturalist is a really good start for how you can be involved and um, be part of the community. But we have very little sequence data from mesospora from 13-year cicadas. We, we have confirmed that the mesospora that infects 17-year cicadas is the same one, in 13-year cicadas. In fact, I showed you this tree because GK2 is a 13-year cicada. I think this is Brew 23. Um, so it's clearly part of the same group. Um, but some of the data Seems to suggest that there's kind of um sequence divergence between the 17 and 13 year, but we just don't have enough isolates to like um resolve that question. So I would love to get some 13-year cicada massospora infections from you know this this next Illinois emergence here in just a few years. So keep keep us in your thoughts. So with that, that kind of wraps up the story of mesospora and and periodical cicadas and, and you know, behavioral modification. Um, I hope this is something that you found interesting. And I am more than happy to answer any questions you may have on cicadas, fungus insect interactions, mesospora, um, you name it. It's kind of an ask me anything fungus related. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for a fascinating presentation. I'm sure we'll have quite a few questions in the chat shortly, Um, but I thought maybe uh, I could start with uh, Matt Nelson. Sorry to put you on the spot, Matt, but you've been dropping a variety of links throughout the uh, program in the chat. Uh, Maybe you want to talk about some of those and uh, ask uh, Dr. Matt Kaysan some questions in particular. Yeah, they were... uh they were, uh, first off, that's really cool talk, Matt. Thanks thanks so much for your time. I know you're on East Coast time too, I'm guessing. So it's especially yeah. late for you. So oh, thank it's fine. you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. But um, yeah, the links I was just putting in were links to a couple of the papers you were mentioning. Um, the plus pathogens one and a more recent one. Um, I, I guess one question I had was, um, have you tried sequencing other species of cicadas and looking to see if misospora is there in like a latent state mm-hmm. at all. Just curious, like, is we it have where everyone kind of has
1: it, but it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Well, one of the biggest revelations in cicada fungal interactions in the last few years is, um, came out of like John McCutcheon's lab and they basically, you know, cicadas like a lot of, um, Uh, and and a lot of hemiptera have bacterial symbionts in their guts. Um, They have a special organ called a bacterium because they feed on sap, which is nutrient poor, and they need to supplement with amino acids that are, are provided by these bacterial symbionts. Well, in a number of cicadas, the bacterial symbionts have been displaced by an ophiocordyceps. Now, if you know ophiocordyceps, that's a pathogen typically, but it's a domesticated ophiocordyceps. So they've basically tamed an insect pathogen to provide basically nutrition in the absence of bacterial partners. It's possible that Mesospora may play a similar role in some cicadas, and then there's a trigger that basically it goes from a latent or or, or a, a, a facultative. now maybe it's maybe it's a, a dominant mutualist and a facultative pathogen, and then in, you know, and, and in that adult stage it emerges. So that's a really good question. And one that we're actually, we collected some eggs and some emerging nymphs to ask that question. There is where we found a higher incidence of misosperia infection. We want to see if we can detect misosperia and surface sterilized nymphs that were on the way down. So it's, yeah, that's, that's great thought.
2: I currently don't see any other questions in the chat. I guess what's what comes from doing a very, uh, Thorough presentation there,
1: oh. or, or long or long presentation. Maybe.
2: No, 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 it was just the right length. It was really fascinating. Thank you. Um, I do see that uh, someone here has a question. Uh, Weston, can you add the question into the chat window, please?
1: Or if you feel comfortable, you can ask it out loud.
0: Okay. Yeah, uh, I know you explained it a little bit in your talk. But I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more about how um, after they made you said like twice, and then the plug falls off, and then they die, and then that's what transfers the fungus into the ground. Or could you explain that a little bit more in depth?
1: Yeah. So the the infected nymph that comes up from um, from the ground molts into an adult, and it's an infected adult. Eventually, its abdomen bursts open, um, and the fungal plug is revealed. That infected adult will then make contact a mating attempt with a healthy individual and they'll back into each other because when they mate they kind of like back into each other um and that abdomen or to fungal plug contact will then lead to a secondary infection um, and that newly infected individual will develop not a conidial infection but a resting spore infection and eventually that cicada will fall to the ground and those those spores will integrate back into the soil um and it's not, you know, it doesn't happen just like that. There's like a week before the, the plug emerges. And then, you know, the, the infected individual will attempt to mate with a lot of different cicadas and, and spread it, you know, it's actually transmissible. So it's and it's a fungal STD and they're just widespread spreading this around. And because of the behavioral manipulation, um, not only are infected males touching and making contact with healthy females. They're also pretending to be females to get males to come in, and they're making co- male male-to-male contact and spreading the spores that way. Um, one of the grotesque things that happens during um, fungal infection is females' abdomens don't fall off that easy because they have a lot of muscle tissue associated with an ovipositor. Ovipositor is a sword-like egg-laying organ on the back where they they're able to penetrate bark tissue and lay eggs, and they have a lot of muscles associated with that. Well, because there, that muscle is there. The abdominal sclerites can't can't come off, and oftentimes, if an infected female mates with a healthy male, um, when they're done mating, the male will break off her genitalia with him, and he'll fly away with the backside of her body. So it's quite grotesque, uh, but this is the life of fungus-infected cicadas. It's 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 wild.
2: Alrighty then. Um, <laughs> Dr. Greg Mueller has a question in the chat. Um, How did the psilocybin get in? Was it through horizontal gene transfer?
1: Yeah, um, so that was one hypothesis. Um, The problem, we haven't been able to fully test it because the genomes are so big, we need to get a more assembled genome. And we have no evidence that there's gene clusters like there are in the the psilocybin producing magic mushrooms. Now, not, not all the enzymes needed for or the genes needed for psilocybin production based on what we know psilocybin production takes in magic mushrooms are present so it could be an independent evolution of psilocybin production and we'll need a couple more pieces to confirm that if that's the case it'll be a real big story um uh but yeah a horizontal gene transfer was kind of our first idea um but we'll see what happens there
0: Um, Matt, I was wondering, is it, is psilocybin known outside of this now and magic mushrooms? I just, I'm not, not aware of other places it occurs, but I haven't kept up. No,
1: no, there's really those are the two instances there. There are some, there are some genes involved in psilocybin production, but not all of them in, um, there's a termite fungus and that's been published somewhat recently. Um, Jason Slott's group out at Ohio state, um, but more or less, it's, it's mesospora and, and the magic mushroom. So um, that's why it's something we want to really nail down because it's interesting. Um, I see a question from Matt here. What's the level of selectivity like? Um, does each mesospora only infect once a species? So that's really interesting because we, we showed that, for example, the mesospora that infects Platypedia, in California, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah is the same Mesospora that infects Okanagana species in Michigan. Um, and they're, they're actually sister sister species, or sister genera. Um, we just got a, a, a Disoropracta Mesospora Disoropracta from a Florida Key cicada, and we have a Mesospora Disoropracta from Arizona, where we need to confirm whether or not they're the same, but it appears that it's, some of them are genera specific, most of them are genera-specific, and some of them are kind of family-specific. Um, but it's clear that there was, um, you know, the, the, this co-evolutionary history dates back, you know, to the earlier ancestors of these cicadas. So I would love to do a co-phylogenetic analysis once we get enough mesosporous species to do that. But that's something I've been thinking about because we, we've done that with our ambrosia beetle fungi. It's always interesting to look for evidence of parallel cladogenesis.
2: Charles snuck in a comment and a question as well. The comment is fantastic and breathtakingly complex. The question is how long are spores viable in the soil?
1: Well, spores are definitely viable for at least 17 years. If infections are occurring in that vertical emergence chamber, like again, coming back to Matt's question, whether or not, you know, are they infected on the way down? Do we find evidence of the latent infections? Um, but we also know that they don't need that dormancy period uh, before they germinate because experimentally, people have taken spores from one brood and infected cicadas from another brood the next year. So they they're, they can infect you know in in one year's time. Um, interestingly, interestingly enough. A lot of the cicada, annual cicadas we see in the East don't have mesospera infections. I'm not sure why. Like, they don't even have their own mesospera species. The dog-day cicadas, maybe it's too hot for the fungus to, like, you know, maybe it was just a dead end for that fungus. Um, so there's, there's so much to answer in this. And, uh, you know, hopefully NSF sees some value in that.
2: Thank you for sharing your current research and for all the information on your further research and opening the doors to questions and ideas on this fascinating behavior and this fascinating relationship. Are there any other questions before we say goodnight to Matt?
1: Well, I appreciate your time. and um, I, I always... thought
0: Matt, Matt yeah. answered all of his questions. Oh, it was. Okay, never mind. Sorry. This was great, by the way. Thank you. I'm sorry to interrupt Stephanie. I thought that didn't answer all no, no. no, no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: all right. Taking care of the two mats there. That's awesome. No, um, Kathy, I see you're back here on the call. So if you'd like to uh, close out the meeting, I will mute myself. Oh,
0: I'm sorry, Steph, you do a great job. I'll let you finish, but sir, this was terrific. This Thank was you. Great stuff.
1: All right. Well, um, I appreciate the uh, invite and, um, uh, Look forward to interacting you know, with you all. Feel free to um, reach out to me on Twitter. Pretty active there. So uh, it's a good way to connect.
0: It may, maybe, I'm sorry to interrupt, Steph, but maybe we'll get a refresher from you just before our brood so that we collect things in the way that's right for your project. Okay, that sounds Does good. That makes sense. Absolutely. We really, i we certainly can help here. Sorry, Steph. No, no. <laughs>
2: All right. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining our meeting this evening.
1: Bye.